Welcome to episode 12 of the Beyond the Lectern podcast. I'm Jason Lodge. And I'm Rachel Sieston. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Duncan Nolte. Duncan is Senior Lecturer in Academic Development in the Learning and Teaching Centre at Australian Catholic University. We spoke to Duncan about student peer and self-assessment, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. What are the things that plagues us as teachers, and probably even more so more experienced educators, is the curse of knowledge. So it's difficult to put yourself in the shoes of a learner in the same way that you can't really reverse a visual illusion. And so in that sense, I can see how near-peer models of teaching could be particularly useful. And you've done some work in this area, Duncan, on peer assessment and and self-assessment. Yeah, I think we should be doing more of it. And also I want to pick up on something you said there in the intro, you know, about putting yourself in the place of a learner. I think one of the key characteristics of any person who's an educator in a university is they've spent an awful long time being a learner. And I think one of the things we forget about is, is, yeah, I was a learner once, you know. In, one, in my teaching, one of the ex- exercises I have is um, spent, you know, 20 minutes thinking about the characteristics of the kind of student you would want to have. Got that? Yep. Okay, now look at this list that I came up with earlier and make a comparison between the features of a student you'd want and the kind of students that I'm listing here as key characteristics of good learners and then decide whether or not you can be that kind of student in my classroom you know, and how you're going to go about doing that. I think, you know, just kind of getting in touch with that sense of, I don't know, self-awareness. What are the criteria? What are the parameters by which I'm going to be judged? You know, I think we're probably actually really good at that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have got this far. So Um, so you're thinking about being a student as a a form of expertise, and so as we go along, we we develop uh, some sort of skill or expertise in in being a better student or being a better learner? Yeah, but I think we don't necessarily know that we've got it. Is part of the point, yeah. you know. So, in terms of peer and self-assessment, I mean, I, I would say that to, to to have made it as an academic or um, to be in a position where you're teaching other people, you must have been spending a long time learning. So, you must have actually had what it took somehow. But were you necessarily aware of that? So, I think that's the rub. I mean, in terms of well, crikey, now I'm actually responsible for teaching other people. Well, I never actually thought about what it was like to be a learner, even yeah. though I've spent so long being one. Maybe I ought to do that to improve my capacity as a teacher. So, I mean, that's, that's I guess, where peer and self-assessment kind of steps in. I mean, it's a vehicle, I think, by which you, the academic, can think about what it's going to take in order to learn. But it's also a vehicle by which the learners themselves are going to learn. So there's, there's kind of two sides to this, I guess. Because one side is about um, helping academics become better teachers through understanding their own learning process. Then the other side of that is then how do they take that and then implement it in their own teaching because it can be difficult for students to get up to speed on uh, what they're doing and making those sorts of assessments. Is, is, that a, is that a fair split, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of, one of the things I'm thinking about is that you know your job as a teacher is to induct the students into the same profession that you're already a member of, and at least in part to um, ensure that something that currently exists in your brain, and I, and I don't just mean declarative knowledge, but a way of thinking, uh, is replicated or at least mimicked in some sort of way in in the brains of the people who are learning. So this isn't just about transmission. You know, I can't just tell you some stuff. I mean, that might be part of it, but there's way more to it than that. You know, when, when, a, when a student leaves my classroom, sure, they're going to know some stuff in the sense of, 
information that they have acquired, but much more importantly than that, in the context of higher education, they're going to have developed some kind of ways of thinking. Well, isn't it my job to kind of model those ways of thinking? Well, uh, how am I going to do that if I'm not even cognizant of them myself? You know. So, in that sense, I see learning and teaching as very much, you know, two sides of the same coin, and they're not necessarily being so much of a separation between the teacher and the learner. I mean, the teacher's learning at the same time as the learners are learning, if you get what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> you know? So, setting yourself up as an expert is almost, um, you know, doomed to failure straight away. Absolutely. But by the same token, when students are leaving my classroom, I need them to be well, not experts, but at least novice-level experts, so that they can function without me. You know, my job is to do myself out of a job. I don't want any of my students coming back to me and saying, hey, Duncan, I'm at such and such a point in my career now, or I'm further down in my studies, but can you just guide me on this thing that I didn't actually learn when I was with you? They need to have assimilated that and take that with them. Um, And if they can't, well, then I failed them in a sense that's very much bigger than the sense of ever failing a unit. One of the, one of the things you touched on there was that higher education is often to, uh, to create better learners and better thinkers so that they can operate in their jobs and lives after university mm. without, without you. And so is that one reason why peer and self-assessment could be particularly useful in the context of more and more wholly online courses and combination courses where a lot of study is online these days. How do you see those models fitting into your concept of peer assessment? Well, I kind of go beyond all that even, you know, to think about where are the students going to end up in the end. Um, And, you know, half the time you're thinking, well, actually, I don't really know where they're going to end up because maybe the jobs that they're going to have don't even exist yet. And maybe these students themselves are going to be the people that create the jobs that they end up having. So I'm kind of thinking that, you know, it's not the case for every profession, I get that, but, you know, there's a certain component of unpredictability in terms of the destination of any student in any classroom, regardless of the discipline. And so I think that there's a kind of, you know, what's the higher in higher education? So there's a kind of moral and very pragmatic imperative to respond to, and that is to say, look, One day you're going to be out there in the real world as opposed to in this academic world and there needs to be some kind of interface between the two. So what's the best way for me to prepare you to be able to cope with something that we actually haven't even conceptualised yet? Well, you know, maybe we're talking about some meta skills rather than any particular disciplinary content per se. So I might be using the disciplinary content through a procedure of learning that leaves you with a skill that is superordinate to what it was that you learned in the content sense. So in that sense, you'd say, okay, well, peer and self-assessment, all right, well, tell me any walk of life in which you're not going to be face-to-face with other people. Mm. You know, you're going to need the capacity to self-evaluate because you're always going to be there and you need to know whether or not you're doing a good job. If you can't tell that you've done a good job or a bad job, then you've got no capacity for improvement. Mm. Um, and similarly, if you're working alongside other people, as axiomatically you will be, you know, unless you plan on finding some other planet and you're going to be the only one on it, um, how are you going to actually interact with other people and make appraisals of their performance? And you know, then there's a kind of interactivity effect as well. It's, it's not just about appraising their performance or my performance, because our performances are interconnected. 
I don't exist in isolation from a community. I exist with and in and of the community. So any evaluation that I make of my performance must surely involve an interaction with other people. Well, if I'm not going to actually involve my students in those kinds of cognitions while they're learning with me, how are they going to engage in them when I'm not there to help them? You know, they're just going to imbue this by some kind of osmotic process. Well, maybe, yeah. You know, there's that kind of joke about students learn in spite of the lecturer rather than because of them. Well, I'd like them to learn because of them as well as in spite of. You know, so, yes, you will learn things that maybe I didn't intend for you to learn, but which are great. I was, I was just thinking as you were talking there about this, this tension that always comes up for me when you, when you start talking about people making judgments about what they're doing um, and judgments about what other people are doing is that on the one side there is this this idea that we make a, a judgment on the basis of an artefact or a performance of some kind which seemingly based certainly on the sort of lab-based research people are generally not too bad at and then the other side of it which is making judgments consistently as we're actually producing something or going through that process of learning which seemingly we're not quite as good at. Mm. Have, you, have you got a, a sense of that tension as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 in fact, when you look at it, it's quite clear because when you look at an artefact, there's something kind of tangible about it. So in terms of the judgment act, what the challenge for you is, it, how can I put this, it, it's, it's a simpler challenge. You've got an object there, it exists, it's tangible, there are therefore specific parameters wrapped around the judgment. Um, and, you know, conceivably you could actually uh, document what it is that the parameters of your judgment are and the, the, the basis of the, of the judgment and you could put that forward in say a rubric let's say but the converse is the kind of judgment in action well that's not really so well defined because it kind of evolves as you're going along so the parameters for judgment are less clear and um, more fluid um, more evolutionary um, so you, you might say, well, that's re real judgment then, you know, judgment in action. Um, the other thing about it, I'm thinking, is a kind of progression in terms of learning. So, like early on, you would in, in any kind of learning sequence, you might say, well, you know what? At this point, I don't even know anything, so I'm not even in a very good position to be able to exercise any judgment because I haven't got anything to base the judgment on. Uh, well, okay, let's take that. But then later on, you'd say, well, now I know a fair bit about what we're talking about. I now do have a basis upon which to make a judgment. And I'm thinking, yes, but, you know, it's not just about what you know. It's about the, the, the skill of making judgment. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of like a problem-based learning scenario in that you're thinking, right, I need to be able to learn how to make judgments about performances. What's the best way for me to do that? What is it that I'm going to need if I'm going to be able to do that? Well, I'm going to need to practice it. I'm also mm. going to need to, to know material, if you like, that's relevant to the judgment. So both things co-occur. Yeah. So it's not like you want to put off till later practicing the act of making a judgment about performance just because you think you don't know enough about it just yet. The act of making the judgment will bring to the surface the things that you don't know that you need to know in order to make the judgment. So that partly picks up on the argument you were making in the paper that we've got as the focus of this discussion, which is around this argument that first years 
are not in a position where they can start doing this sort of peer review because they don't know enough. Whereas you're sort of saying that the two of those things really need to happen in parallel. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the literature on um, peer and self-assessment with first-year students, um, there's plenty of evidence to show that the judgments of first-year students can, in fact, be really quite accurate. In other words, they wouldn't differ all that much from the judgment that their lecturer might make. You know. Now, having said that, the judgments that are made by students later in their programs tends to be more accurate, but you'd expect that, wouldn't you? You'd kind of hope for that. Exactly. They're you know? getting better. Yeah, they're getting better. <laughs> I know more about it. I know what the parameters are. Yeah. You know, it's more defined. Yeah. Whereas early on, it's like, well, I'm a you know small fish in a big ocean. I don't really know yeah. which way is up yet. So that speaks to one of the problems that I find hard to reconcile is that, as Jason was saying, at a medical level, people generally tend to be not so great judges of their own learning in specific instances. So we stop study when it's not necessarily most beneficial to us and sometimes we can make high confidence errors. But on the other hand, there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that things like self-reflection, self-explanation, elaborative interrogation uh, are quite useful learning tools. Um, and so how do, we, how do these two things um, coexist as we're developing expertise in, in a general sense in terms of our ability to assess ourselves as well as others and also I'm wondering what you think about if you were to pit self-assessment against peer assessment which one do you think wins out and maybe they're not necessarily mutually ex exclusive. Mm -hmm. Well David Bowd wrote something about, um, I've got to get this right, I, th I think he said that peer assessment was subordinate to self-assessment mm -hmm. because you need to actually develop some capacity for judgment in yourself before you can actually exercise any kind of judgment of the performance of other people. But at the same time, he said, the two are mutually supportive of one another, that an individual doesn't exist in isolation from peers. And the other thing is that when you get into actually involving yourself in a peer evaluation, you are exposed to uh, ways of doing things, ways of expression, uh, points of view, bits of information that you wouldn't have come up with in a thousand years. Mm. You know, so you could say, okay, right, what's the sequence here? I will help a person to make evaluations of their own performance first, okay? And then I will ask them to make evaluations of other people's performance second. And in the act of the second, it will enhance the first. Fantastic. So you do not want to actually separate the two completely, but maybe you kind of recognise that, well, if, there's, if there is a start, it's like chicken and egg, you know, so if there is a start point, let's start with self-assessment, but that start point only exists once, ever. After that, you just go round and round, oscillating essentially between the two and noting that each one helps the other. Um, so, you know, I think it'd just be a mistake to say, I'm only going to focus on one and not the other. I think you need to use both. I think I would agree as well. Do either of you have any thoughts on how, how we could use both of these things in an online course, like a MOOC? So I know there are discussion forums, there is increasing use of technology in education, and I'm wondering how we can make use of self and peer assessment in those sorts of environments. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that happen there. I think one of them is that the, the online environment provides ways of doing peer and self-assessment that uh, are different, I won't say better or worse, but are different from the sorts of things that you could do in a face-to-face -face environment. So 
you know, for example, there are online tools that can help you randomly assign reviews to people. They can do those reviews electronically. They're, they're shared very easily. They're, you know, there's a there's a very clear way of being able to communicate yeah. what those self and peer reviews look like. Yeah. Um, whether or not that means that that's equivalent in a broad sense to what somebody can do when they sit down and have a discussion is a separate sort of issue. And an empirical question. Maybe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could totally be an empirical question. Yeah. And I think the the thing with the MOOCs is that, and certainly there's been some work done here and you know in other places around different MOOCs, um, looking at the sorts of peer reviews that occur in there, and that it's it's quite messy. That some people are, are quite good at that process of, of reviewing and understanding their own progress, whereas other people are not so good at it. And you know, I guess the idea behind this is that by communicating between them, they'll get a better sense of what those judgments look like, in theory. Yeah, well, there's several points I'd like to make. I mean, one is from Phil Race, who says, if you're going to do peer and self-assessment, start simple. And I think that's very good advice. And, I mean, you, you brought it up in the context of doing it in, with you know, digital learning tools. I'm thinking, yep, fine, you know, there's a whole load of new ways of using technology. Um, but I've always kind of believed that technology actually isn't the limiting variable here I am I'm not capable of making it do that so you know if I'm going to start with peer and self-assessment I want to learn about you know Moodle or Blackboard or whatever the tool is figure out how am I going to make this tool do what it purports to be able to do with my students so yes you've you've got features that can allocate your students to groups and allow them to swap bits of work and all that yeah but you know what I'm just going to keep it really simple to start with while I get my head around what the tool can do get around what it is that I think my students can cope with and figure out, you know, the intersections between the use of the tool and the actual learning that I'm trying to precipitate. So that's the first thing. Um, there was another point that you made in there, and it's gone out of my head. Well, we might we might end up coming back around to it anyway. Um, I think that picks up on one of the one of the sort of points that jumps out for me is that, you know, for example, let's say that I've got a thousand first year students. I, you know, I don't have a strong background in education. You know, I'm an academic. I'm really good in my discipline. For me, how am I going to then think about a way of introducing peer review into first year, given that it could quite be quite a challenge with such a large group of students? Have you got any any sense of that? I mean, is this one of the main reasons why we don't see more peer review and, and self-review in a, in a first year level? Yeah, I mean, I think there's several reasons. One is that just the complexity thing, you know, so it's just a fear factor, you know, mm-hmm. I daren't do it. Um, but there's also a kind of intellectual snobbery sort of thing, I'd say. Maybe my st- I believe, wrongly, that my students are just not up to it yet, you know, so like they're only first years. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a, you know, that's not the, the way to think. First year is, you know, no less important than any other year. I mean, you could say that what is achieved in terms of learning outcomes in the first year might be less valuable than what's achieved in the final year. I get that. But the fact is, you couldn't achieve what you're going to achieve in the final year without this foundation. So let's make sure that the foundation is as big and as strong as it can be and and not think that just because my students haven't progressed far on this content learning yet does not mean that they shouldn't be involved in these higher order processes of thinking about what it is that's required in order to be able to make a judgment about the quality of my performance which brings me back to the thing that I've forgotten which is that the process involves getting your learners to think about well, what is it that's important so in other words to figure out the criteria first but then also to figure out 
what are the standards on those criteria? And then the third layer is, okay, I've got the criteria, I've got some kind of notion about performance standards, but I actually need to think in a dynamic sense of applying that through acts of judgment. And that is, you know, a higher order skill again. So you can see how you take a kind of constructivist progression through learning. Um, I mean, you could say, right, first year, you know nothing. You, in fact, you know less than nothing because you don't even know that you know nothing. If you knew no- <laughs> that you knew nothing, that would be something, but you don't. So you start by saying, I'm going to tell you some stuff. Okay, well, these are like the, the, param- the, the, the really lowest parameters of making a judgment. Um, but unless it's actually put into those terms, people won't see the link. You know, or just think of it as content that has to be accumulated. No, these are um, foundational bits of information that you're going to need in order to be able to make judgments about your performance down the track. So actually starting off with that whole narrative seems to me to be something that's actually quite important. And just because come the end of first year they won't be experts well, of course they won't be experts. They won't be experts no matter what you do. Um, but they're on a journey. So why wouldn't we use whatever tools we've got to actually expedite the, the journey and to get them further than we might otherwise get them? Definitely. And why don't we recognise that, in fact, it's not the content really that's all that important at the end of the day. It's their soft skills, if you like, you know, their cognitive capacities. Do you think one of the problems is that we, we assume people come into university with these sorts of skills, even if even if they don't explicitly know it. And so we don't focus on the foundational skills, particularly in first year when perhaps, I think you even talk about in your article, doing away with a lot of the content knowledge in first year uh, and focusing on more of these, these foundational skills, critical thinking skills, learning skills, um, learning how to assess yourself in peers. And so maybe one of the thornier problems is balancing, working out as a, as a first year educator, how finely tuned students' metacognitive skills are in the first place, and then balancing content knowledge with these foundational skills. Well, I think that could be part of it, but I think the bit in the paper that you're referring to is where I was trying to explore um, more philosophically what the purpose of the first year was all about. Yeah. And I think kind of the conclusion that I made was that, well, actually, there are multiple potential purposes that we might have in mind for first year, but I doubt very much that any of them are ever, ever articulated. So if there's a meta-narrative to the paper, it's about the extent to which we as educators have in our head a notion of the purpose being served by the first year of a university degree as distinct from the purpose of the second year or the purpose of the third year. Mm. I think part of the reason why we don't actually engage in the use of peer and self-assessment more than we do is because we actually haven't had that kind of thinking for ourselves and then as an extension of that thinking to say and so peer and self-assessment has a role to play in this trajectory that I've now figured out. You know, if we haven't actually figured that out, well, then you'd say, well, you know, hang on a minute. My conception of what it is to be a tertiary educator is that it's my job to tell you some stuff, at least in the first year. Then my conception of second year is to help you to make sense of the stuff you acquired in the first. And then the third year, well, you're about to graduate, so we better get into some skills <laughs> development before you, before you leave, you know. Yeah. That might be as far as my thinking goes. Well, it's not a bad kind of model in itself, you know, but if you did think that way, then you'd leave the development of skills 
till too late. Why not start shaping that as early as you possibly can um, and involving people in partnership, if you like, with the, uh, the development of the skills that are going to be much more highly refined come the third year if you started the development of them in the first. So I think that's really where I would go with it. Mm. Which is always going to be a bit trickier, isn't it? Because I think in a lot of instances you've got um, this idea that there is a certain amount of knowledge that has to be packed into students by the end of first year so that they can do something meaningful with it in second and third year. And often you see those sorts of things pop up in accreditation guidelines. So it's, it's this sense that you've got to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And there's not a lot of room left around that to do anything meaningful apart from just get that stuff into the students' heads. So it sort of makes it tricky because you've got that on the one side, but then you've got the other side, which is the sort of um, first year model where you've got this kind of common approach to curriculum and it's much more about these uh, these other skills that they're going to need later on. So it seems like there's a, a push and pull between those two things, as Rachel was saying. There's, there's sort of a, a real um, difficulty in balancing those two sides. Well, one of the things I'm thinking about there is, you know, what is it that you actually want to try and teach the students? So if you did come at it and say, well, actually, I've got these accreditation requirements here and they basically focus on particular points of coverage, content coverage, that I just have to get through. I've got to tick these 15 boxes in the next 15 weeks, so help me God. Um, okay, well, you've got choices about the way in which you might accomplish that. I mean, you might say, okay, I'm just going to tell you, so 15 weeks, 15 points to cover, one point per week, great, you know, I'll just structure my lectures around content and I'll just tell you what you need, right, done that one tick, done that one, right, that's one approach. Another approach might be, you know, just a totally different paradigm in, in that you'd say, okay, I've got a problem for you, the problem is that you have to imagine yourself as a practitioner in such and such a situation um, and you've got to figure out what it is that you need to know in order to be able to cope with that situation. And if you're smart, you can actually figure out situations that are fictitious perhaps, but based on reality, that students can look at and say, oh, crikey, so I'm going to be a nurse or I'm going to be a, a teacher or I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to be in situation X. What am I going to need if I'm in situation, oh, I'm going to need this. Well, if they figured that out, isn't that going to be a far better way of actually covering the content? Because they are going to be motivated then. They're going to see the, pur the purpose of it. They're going to see the value of it. They're going to see the relevance of it. And they're going to be more self-directed to seek out that information and, in fact, to elaborate the information with some sense of context that is purposeful. You know, and, you know, if there's one thing about adults, it's that they are purposeful. You know, it's not like being at school where you just sit there and take it. You know, if you're at university, you have a choice. You chose to be there, and the last time I checked, an adult wouldn't spend time, effort and money on something that they didn't think was purposeful, worthwhile, valuable, contributing to them having a better life, mm. you know. Yeah. I mean, Unless they're Collingwood fans. <laughs> <laughs> so, I suppose that, that brings me to uh, one of the burning questions that I had, which was, as a researcher in, in education, or even in, a, in any discipline within higher education, uh, who's interested in, in applying their uh, content knowledge to um, teaching in their discipline. What are the things that we should be focusing on? What, uh, what, what questions are still open that we need answers to? Where do you see research going in the self-assessment and peer assessment space in the future? <laughs> when you actually look at the field of peer and self-assessment, um, well, I mean, you know, just check out the paper. 
And I think there's about three pages of references. And certainly not something that I anticipated when I started writing the paper. I thought this will be a doddle, you know. (laughs) And months and months of reading later, I still didn't feel like I'd really got the coverage of the the discipline that I had. Um, The the, the coverage that... There's more there than you could ever assimilate. There's so much written on peer and self-assessment, it's not funny. But, you know, there were a couple of problems that were sort of identified in the paper. Um, And, you know, frankly, I think that they're more ado with the kind of conceptual stuff. So there's a part of the paper where I talk about uh, the literature being classified into three different sections. And then I said, but the third section really needs to be subdivided into three again. You know, and I think when you actually start looking at that, you start realising well, maybe we don't actually have a sufficiently complex conceptual framework to give us direction and purpose for the use of peer and self-assessment. You know, people are coming at it from different angles, which is why you've got that that kind of fragmentation in the literature. But it's not systematic enough. It's not um, kind of organised enough or deliberate enough. I mean, just as an illustration of what I mean... um, a lot of papers that use peer and self-assessment in the first year of university don't even mention the fact that they're doing it in the first year. So in other words, first year isn't really the focus of the paper. What the focus of the paper is, is perhaps um, I've got a thousand students and I'm looking for a way to minimise my marking load. Wouldn't it be good if I could get the students to mark each other's work? Well, I could do that if I believe that they're going to be as accurate as I am. You know, it might be that kind of paper. Well, you know, there's merit in that kind of paper, of course, but, you know, there's a whole other angle, and that is, conceptually speaking, does peer and self-assessment actually assist with the educative purpose that you have for this unit that is in the first year? And what is it about being first year that is different from what it would be to be second year? So I'd like to see a bit more kind of deliberateness, if you like, in, in that conceptual space to try and get us to um, make better use of peer and self-assessment. And then following on from that, what, what should it look like? What what peer and self-assessment look like in uh, your particular course, uh, if you're running a first-year course in psychology or biology? How do you incorporate these into your practice? And I'm sure there are multiple different ways that you could use peer and self-assessment in in your courses and I think one of the difficulties is just not knowing how. Mm-hmm. Well that's I think that's an interesting idea. There is also a complexity attached to the knowledge domain that you're dealing with. So if if it's first year anatomy for example and the whole point is that you need to know that this is attached to this is attached to this. Um, great. That's that's kind of one way of, of making sense of whether you understand that or not. At the other end, you might have you know first year earth science where you need to understand climate change, mm. which is obviously a much more highly systemic, super complex system of, of things going on. So the judgment's kind of different there. As, so there's sort of another perspective I think that's running beside that as well. Right. Yeah. So the peer assessment tool might not be as generic as we're describing it. it might you might want it to look very different depending on the kinds of concepts you're wanting people to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. So when you bring in that other side of it, which is you know how how is the peer advanced in any way? Are they at exactly the same level? Is there some uh, real benefit in having students who are at different levels to begin with? So one has probably got a bit more of a sense of what's going on than the other. Does that then help both of them? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I sort of get a sense from what I'm hearing is that there's probably a lot of complexity still there to unpack, despite the fact that it seems like there's been decades of work on, on this stuff. One of the things that that's triggered for me, Jason, is that learning isn't a spectator sport. You've got to think, you know, and thinking is not passive, it's active. So, you know, as an educator, what is it that I'm trying to do? I'm trying to actually engage people in expending cognitive effort. Mm-hmm. You know, if I think about it literally, I'm looking for a biochemical change at the synapse that's going to endure long after I'm gone. Well, that isn't going to happen unless some serious effort is expended. So it's not going to be good enough for me just to tell somebody something. They've actually got to work it out. Mm. So it seems to me that asking learners to think about what it is they think that they need to know and why, and then going and getting that content within that kind of context, um, is going to be far better than me saying, okay, take my word for it, there's some things that you need to know and I'm going to tell them to you. You know, it's a totally different kind of paradigm in terms of the way in which we're engaging our students in their learning. Um, Now, you know, I've been around long enough to hear every academic say, oh yeah, but they're only first years. Um, But every now and then I'll come across an academic who's actually managed somehow to be imaginative enough to come up with a design for their unit that says, all right, uh, Noel Myers is a good example. He used to work at QUT teaching plant um, and plant cell structures and functions, you know, something really dry and boring. And, you know... Hey, some people love that stuff. Well, his word's <laughs> not mine. You know, he said, this is as dry as... Well, I won't say what he said it was, <laughs> but it was pretty dry, let me tell you. Biscuits. Old biscuits? No, anyway. He's, he came up with a, um, a unit design that was, um, OK, I want you to design me a plant that I can stick on a spaceship and send to Mars, and the purpose of the plant is going to be, A, it's got to survive in this atmosphere... And B, it's got to transform that atmosphere into something breathable for us in a few decades' time. Oh, and it'd be kind of handy if it produced fruit so we had something to eat while we, when we get there as well. Um, well, as soon as you've got a challenge like that, people can say, oh, crikey, so now I can see why it would be useful to know about plant structures and functions because it will help me to solve that problem. You know, um, now, me, personally, I just don't have it in me to come up with something that imaginative. So, you know, how, how am I going to come up with a, a new course design like Noel did? Um, but nonetheless, you know, the point is it's out there, you know, to, to be discovered, if you like. Noel told me he had one of his students, first-year students, building a terrarium, you know, those little glass things, and putting plants in there and sticking spotlights on it to try and mimic some of the conditions that might be on Mars and see how different plants actually managed in his terrarium. I'm thinking, you know, this is a way, way higher level of engagement and participation in a subject than you'd normally expect. Now, you tell me, that student, and probably all of them, learned more by virtue of that engagement. And what's the key characteristic? Purpose. A sense of value and a sense of worth and relevancy. You know, thinking, yeah, there's going to come a day where I'm going to actually... Not that I'm actually going to send a plant to Mars, but I'm going to be needed 
This knowledge is going to be needed because someone's going to say to me, look, we've got some pretty arid conditions in such and such a place. What kinds of crops can we grow there? So he's actually instantiating what it would be like in that profession later on, Uh, giving people a varied amount of experience with the things that they're trying to learn and giving them the end goal is particularly useful. But a lot of courses focus on the abstract rules um, to begin with. Take chemistry, for example, giving mm. people the chemical formulas and then then putting uh, the clothes mm. off, dressing, dressing those um, abstract rules with, with, with examples and instantiation from there. How do you see at, that fitting in? At your peril is what I would say. <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> it's another or, conversation. <laughs> no, I think it's perfectly relevant. You know, I remember studying um, advanced mathematics and you know, being given a formula that would enable me to work out how fast I'd have to swirl a piece of string with a rock tied to the end so that if I'm swirling it um, in an arc going up and down that the the string will remain taut even when the rock is at the top of the arc and you know all the way around and I'm I'm thinking who cares you know (laughs) what possible value could this have see value how could this possibly be relevant to me my life my future result Total lack of engagement, total failure to understand the the formula, the total failure when it came to my exam in the end as well, which I was pretty upset about, let me tell you. Now, had somebody said to me, now look, imagine that you're trying to design a front-loading washing machine, and it is your job to figure out how to distribute the clothes evenly around the drum before it goes to spin speed. Then that formula would have been useful, because... I would have been able to figure out that the clothes are going to tumble, tumble, tumble until such point in time as the drum gets up to a certain speed and then the clothes are going to stick to the outside of the drum by which time they would have been evenly distributed. Brilliant. You know, now that came to me sitting in a laundry in a freezing... I came out from the snow into the laundry because it was the warmest place, sat watching the washing machine washing my clothes and I'm thinking, oh my God, that's that formula that I failed to understand as an undergraduate. The point of the story is if you can't figure out some way in which to make what it is that you're teaching your students relevant to them, you can seriously expect them to disengage. You know, now this is your subject, your discipline. If you can't be excited about it, if you can't actually figure out what the relevance of it is and make that transparent to your students, you're in trouble. You know, so you you said chemistry, okay, there are some abstract concepts that we're going to have to teach you. Why can't you say why? Can you not say why? You know, you might say, look, one day you're going to be a chemist and you are going to be doing something that involves, you know, X, describe the situation. If you're going to do X well, there's certain things you're going to need to know. You're going to need to know about this, for example. Can you see that? You know, explain it to people in a way that they can see it, and they say, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. So, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain that to you so that when you get into situation X, you've at least got that component of the problem licked. There are other units of study in this degree that will take other components out of situation X so that by the time you get there, you'll be able to handle the whole thing. My job is only to do this little bit. So if it appears disconnected, always remember that we're going there, you know. Do you, otherwise, like I say, people are just going to think, what? 
Okay. Am I doing this for? Do you, do you think there might be some spillover? So say we've got we've got a really good sense of purpose in the students. They know where they're headed with with what they're learning. Do you think there might be some sort of spillover effect of that on their capacity to be able to self, you know, self monitor and self regulate and make better assessments about how they're progressing? What what I'm thinking is that if we start to give them this sense of purpose. Uh, and they get stuck, you know, because a lot of real-life problems that we see day-to-day, particularly nowadays, are really complicated and it's, it's sort of easy to get stuck. Do you reckon there might... I'm not sure if there is anything that I'm aware of where those two things line up directly, but it would kind of be interesting to know whether there is some spillover effect of that motivation on people to go, all oh, right, so I really want to try and solve this real-world problem. I see how that's going to be relevant to me in the future. Therefore, I should stop and think a bit more about how I'm progressing as I'm going. Or is the motivation going to mean that they're going to get more frustrated because they really want to solve it, because they really want to be good at doing this kind of problem because they're so convinced that it's relevant to their, their future career? Okay. Thinking back to parent self-assessment, right? So think about the movie Apollo 13. You remember there's a scene in which they're all in a room and they're talking about, you know, the spaceship is going to last them until this point, three quarters of the way around the moon. I need to get them all the way back to here, Earth. Big gap, you know. And Gene Kranz, the guy, he's saying, this gap, gentlemen, is unacceptable. I want them back here with power to spare. How are we going to do it? And one guy pipes up, you know, something like, we've got to shut all the systems down because at the moment the the LEM is drawing too much power from the batteries and they won't last five hours, let alone in a couple of days. The, the point of the story is that they're actually working on something real mm-hmm. and they're not doing it individually either, yeah. Yeah. you know? I mean, the, my dad once said to me, he was installing the Science Museum's security system and he said, you can be sure that the combined intelligence of all the criminals who want to get past this system is greater than the intelligence of the handful of people that designed it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something wise about that, you know, that there is collective intelligence. Okay. So you think about it, you know, you said we get stuck on problems. Yeah, as individually we frequently do. Why? Because we use the same subroutines, mm-hmm. you know, and we just can't quite convince ourselves that this particular way of trying to solve the problem isn't going to work you know so we go over the same turf again and again like I remember putting the scissors in that top drawer I'm sure they're in the top drawer I've looked in the top drawer I know they're not in the top drawer but I'm going to look again just in case because I can't believe they're not in there it's that kind of thing working with another person they say now Dunk there might just be another way of looking at this you know like you, you remember putting them in the top drawer but that's not the last time it's a false memory from a previous time you've obviously put them somewhere else let's attack this problem from a different angle Mm. and you not being me bring to it a different way of thinking a different set of parameters a different procedure and that breaks the stalemate you know so peer and self in interaction is bound to enrich the situation you know that's a good point point. (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah, so with, uh, that that rings true with wisdom in the crowd too. So when you have a group of people, even independently, uh, trying to judge, say, the number of jelly, be- jelly beans in a jar, there mm. uh, as a, the group average um, will always be more accurate than. Um, than so well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and so I think it's this, the case, you could probably leverage that same wisdom in the crowd's mechanism um, to help people's learning because you're giving people a slightly different instantiation of how to solve a problem. 
um, and that yeah I hadn't really even thought well, about that how many real life situations do you think of where you're actually told to go off and solve a problem on your own you know it's like on the TV you know no consulting or you know I'll consult the audience or I'll phone a friend remember that TV yeah. show mm-hmm. I mean the reality is you don't get given a problem to solve on your own. You go off and you consult other people, either directly or indirectly. Real life involves that. Why then wouldn't we involve that in our learning and teaching situations? Surely it makes sense. You know, I actually want what it is that my students are doing to be, you know, at least to resemble real life. You know, this isn't just an academic exercise, folks. We're here for a purpose, and the purpose doesn't exist within this university per se, it exists within the society that we're a part of. So, you know, try and maintain that link the whole time. Um, You know, I mean, of course, universities are kind of self-sustaining, I get that. But, you know, there's a purpose within the university which nonetheless serves the the greater community. So I think we lose sight of that at our peril. Thanks, Doug. I think that um, that was a really good conversation. I think we dug into some of the real issues around self-assessment and peer assessment and then went off on a number of different really interesting tangents which is always good related but very interesting yeah thank you